0: Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr Emma Werner. With 2023 marking 40 years since the discovery of HIV, this week we're looking back over four decades of AIDS, from the earliest whispers of a mysterious new disease to fighting back against this deadly virus. Before we go any further, let's acknowledge the obvious. I am not Kat or Sally. Eager listeners of the show may recognise my name from the end credits of previous episodes. I am one of the producers of this podcast and usually work behind the scenes to help the show run smoothly. But as an early Christmas treat, this time I am stepping in front of the microphone to bring you a story of my choosing. And if you're listening to this episode on the day of its release, then tomorrow, the 1st of December, will be World AIDS Day 2023. So, as a molecular biologist with a long-standing fascination for infectious diseases, this week I want to tell you the story of HIV, starting from the very beginning. April 1981 Our story starts in room 161 of the Center for Disease Controls Building 6 in Atlanta, Georgia. A drug technician by the name of Sandy Ford writes a memo to his superior about five unusual pneumonia cases all occurring in young gay men and all caused by a rare yeast-like fungus only ever seen in immunosuppressed patients. By the time the CDC publicly acknowledges this unusual coincidence, three of five patients have died. And so begins the global AIDS epidemic. Meanwhile, dermatologists across the US are noticing an increasing number of people with an aggressive and uncommon skin cancer called Kaposi sarcoma. Once again, all the patients are homosexual men and in the few patients who had the immune system tested, all are found to be severely immunosuppressed. By August of 81, the CDC has received reports of well over a hundred cases of Kaposi's sarcoma or fungal pneumonia, sometimes both at the same time, and almost always in previously healthy gay men. By the end of the summer, nearly half of them have died. As the new year rolls in, the epidemic of strange, deadly symptoms grows ever larger, and fear and stigma spread across the population. Newspapers label the disease GRID for gay-related immunodeficiency. The term gay cancer enters the lexicon as a synonym for Kaposi sarcoma. And young men begin to dread the appearance of its telltale purple skin lesions that invariably marks them for a rapid death. But by now, the strange syndrome has already spread outside of the gay community reports of a similar illness are emerging in intravenous drug users, hemophiliacs, sex workers, and their respective partners. And it's no longer confined to the US either, as cases are found in Australia, Europe, and South America. Meanwhile, the list of symptoms grows with every new patient, soon including seizures, rapid weight loss, fevers, and other types of cancers. But no matter the symptoms, it is, without exception, fatal. It's now August 1982, and for the first time, the CDC uses the term acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, or AIDS, to describe this new illness, defining it as a disease at least moderately predictive of a defect in cell-mediated immunity occurring in a person with no known cause for diminished resistance to that disease. The CDC also puts forward the hypothesis that this immunodeficiency syndrome may be caused by an infectious agent not yet identified. The hunt for the killer behind AIDS is finally on. April 1983. Two years have now elapsed since Sandy Ford's fateful memo to her CDC boss. The global toll of AIDS is growing ever higher and the culprit behind the epidemic remains elusive. At last, Françoise Barré-Sinoussi and Luc Montagnier from the Pasteur Institute in Paris report that they have isolated a new virus from the lymph nodes of a homosexual man displaying symptoms known often to precede AIDS. They publish an electron micrograph showing irregular-shaped circular virus particles, or virions, burning from the surface of immune cells taken from the patients. This now infamous black and white image is the first ever picture of the Human Immunodeficiency Virus, or HIV. Barré-Sennoussi and Montagnier stop short of identifying this new virus as the cause of AIDS, though they do put the idea forward. However, they correctly identified this infectious agent as belonging to a family of viruses called retroviruses. As it so happens, the first human retroviruses were identified only a few years earlier by Robert Gallo at the National Institute of Health, or NIH, in the US. With both the French and the American groups working on the same disease, they're in regular contact and, sometime in the summer of 83, the scientist from Pasteur sent Robert Gallo in the States a sample of HIV. But this seemingly ordinary act of scientific collaboration would soon have consequences neither groups could ever have predicted. Across the Atlantic, Gallo's group has also been investigating the cause of AIDS since the early days of the epidemic. Finally, in 1984, he and his colleagues published their findings. They've isolated a retrovirus from 47 patients diagnosed with AIDS or pre-AIDS, as well as from one clinically healthy gay man who goes on to develop AIDS shortly after. But, and very importantly, the team were unable to find this virus in over 100 healthy heterosexual donors. Robert Gallo and his colleagues reached the obvious conclusion. This retrovirus must be the mysterious infectious agent behind the AIDS epidemic. And it is probably the same retrovirus that the scientists from the Pasteur Institute had isolated and photographed the previous year. But Gallo's groundbreaking findings don't just stop there. His team also figures out how to grow large quantities of the virus in the lab, paving the way for the development of a patented HIV blood test still used to this day. This should have been the world-changing breakthrough that forever cemented Gallo's name in the scientific hall of fame. Unfortunately, Gallo's contribution is often overshadowed by the events that followed. Although Gallo and his colleagues had successfully isolated and grown HIV from a number of patients, The viral strain they used to develop their patented blood tests turned out to be none other than the very same strain sent over by the French research group in the summer of 1983. As you can imagine, this revelation did not go down too well in France. A major dispute erupted between the Pasteur Institute and the NIH, with the French accusing the Americans of taking credit for their research. These misconduct accusations swirled into international lawsuits and escalated to the very top levels of government, culminating in US President Ronald Reagan and French Prime Minister Jacques Chirac having to meet in person to settle the dispute. Throughout the affair, Gallo maintains that his use of the viral isolate from the Pasteur Institute had been purely accidental. And although he would eventually be cleared of malpractice, the controversy fallout would follow him throughout his career. In 2008, the Nobel Prize for Medicine was awarded for the discovery of HIV. And although the Nobel Committee is allowed to celebrate up to three winners, only Françoise and Luc Montagnier were named while Robert Gallo was passed over. As AIDS continued to sow devastation throughout the 1980s and into the 90s, the culprit behind this epidemic finally had a name, the Human Immunodeficiency Virus. But the identification of HIV raised as many questions as it answered. Where did this virus come from? How could it cause such an array of symptoms? And why would it take months or even years for these symptoms to appear following an infection? A little aside here before I go any further. The term HIV is slightly misleading. We now know that HIV refers to not one but two distinct viruses, HIV-1 and the much less common HIV-2. Both viruses are the result of similar retroviruses naturally found in African primates jumping across species into humans, likely as a result of bushmeat hunting. But for the sake of simplicity, I will continue to use HIV to refer to both subtypes as a whole. Now, as a listener of Genetics Podcast, you may well have heard of the so-called central dogma of molecular biology. Put forward by Watson and Crick in the early days of their research, the dogma states that genetic information flows only in one direction, from DNA to RNA during transcription, and from RNA to protein during translation. And in case you need a quick refresher, DNA is the long, double-stranded molecule and the master copy of our genetic information, while RNA is the single-stranded photocopy of a section of DNA. A transcriptase enzyme makes these RNA photocopies in the nucleus of a cell before they're transported to the cytoplasm, where they're read by ribosomes that translate the code into proteins. And now we're all clear on the laws of molecular biology I've got some bad news for you. HIV doesn't play by the rules. It turns the whole central dogma on its head because as the name suggests, retroviruses do things a bit backwards. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find out more information about this episode on our website, geneticsunzipped.com, or come and say hello to us over on Twitter, at Genetics The deadline for the last round of Junior Scientist Conference grants this year is coming up tomorrow, December the 1st. So if you're really, really speedy, there is still just about time to send in your application. These grants support the attendance of junior scientist members at genetic conferences with funding of up to £750. Application details are on the Genetics Society's website, genetics.org.uk, or as always, there's a link in the show notes on our website. If you zoom in on the HIV virion. It looks like a tiny ball surrounded by a membrane and decorated with proteins pointing outwards, and with strands of RNA and a few well-chosen proteins on the inside. If you can picture SARS-CoV-2, the virus behind COVID-19, HIV looks somewhat similar, but that's where the similarities between the two viruses end. Despite both being RNA viruses, their life cycle, for lack of a better word, look nothing alike. So HIV infection starts with an initial exposure from an infected individual. As the virus is found in bodily fluids, it is usually transmitted by blood contact, such as needle sharing or blood transfusion, by unprotected sexual intercourse, or from a pregnant mother to her developing fetus. Once inside the body, the virus attaches itself to a specific type of immune cells called CD4 cells, a type of helper T cell. Now immunology is wonderfully complicated, but all you need to know is that these helper cells are absolutely essential to the proper functioning of our immune system. As the name suggests, helper cells don't attack pathogens directly, but rather help instruct other immune cells interaction. Think of them as army generals who don't do any fighting themselves, but command their soldiers into battle. Except, in the case of HIV, it's the generals that are under direct attack from the enemy. When HIV locks onto a helper cell, it injects a mix of viral RNA and enzymes into the cell. Amongst these is an enzyme called reverse transcriptase. Now if you remember from the central dogma, normal transcriptase enzymes make RNA photocopies from the DNA master copy. Reverse transcriptase, on the other hand, has the unique ability to make DNA from RNA. In other words, it reverses the flow of the central dogma. Inside the infected cell, the HIV reverse transcriptase takes the viral RNA and makes double-stranded DNA copies. These are then transported into the nucleus of the cell where a second HIV enzyme, called integrase, integrates or stitches it into the helper cell's chromosomes. That's right, the HIV genes actually become part of the human genome, sitting side by side with all the other genes that make you human. And because the virus has managed to edit the genetic master copy, any time the helper cell splits in two to make new helper cells, those HIV genes get copied across with the chromosomes into the new cell too. This leads to the most challenging aspect of HIV and AIDS. Once you're infected, you'll be HIV positive for the rest of your life because our body doesn't have a way of finding and removing viruses hidden in our genomes. And it's not just HIV that does this, by the way. Our genomes are riddled with traces of ancient retroviruses, long extinct infections that now make up up to 8% of our genome. In Season 5, Episode 7 of this podcast, entitled Face to Face, Kat found out how some of these endogenous retroviruses are actually responsible for making us look human, and we'll put a link to that episode in our show notes. Back inside our infected helper cell, these viral genes contain all the necessary information to make more HIV proteins, like reverse transcriptases and integrases. From then on, the infected cell transcribes the viral DNA as if it was its own, producing more and more HIV RNA and proteins. These viral products eventually assemble into new virions that bud off from the cell, stealing a little bit of the cell membrane as they do so to form the outer layer. They're released into the body, ready to infiltrate more helper T-cells, and the cycle continues. The infected cell, meanwhile, does not survive this hijacking of its genetic machinery and dies. In some cases, this replication cycle hits a few snags, but these benefits the virus. First of all, once inserted into the host's genome, retroviral DNA can stay hidden for long periods of time. This DNA is said to be latent, it's not transcribed, and no viruses are produced. These sleeper agents provide HIV with a safety reservoir. Because even if all the actively producing cells were to die, some viral DNA would still be present in latent cells, ready to reactivate as and when necessary. Secondly, the HIV reverse transcriptase is notoriously error-prone and introduces a tonne of spelling mistakes when copying RNA into DNA. As a result, an infected cell may accumulate incomplete error-filled DNA fragments in its cytoplasm that never end up integrated into the genome. The cell recognises this as a sign that something is going wrong. In response, it dramatically self-destructs hoping to nip the ongoing infection in the bud, and in its dying breath sends alert signals to the rest of the immune system. Unfortunately, this noble sacrifice backfires spectacularly. Alerted by the dying cell, more immune cells rush to the site of infection to battle. And under normal circumstances, they would neutralize and destroy whatever danger they found waiting for them there. But HIV is a disease of the immune system. It targets and infects immune cells. So instead of summoning an influx of soldiers, the dying cell has attracted the virus's next victims. As the infection progresses, helper cells die in droves. The body can't replace them fast enough as each new cell is merely a new target for the virus to subvert. Eventually, helper cell numbers fall so low that the immune system collapses. All the generals have succumbed, the soldiers do not know what to do, and the army falls into complete disarray. The patient develops full-blown AIDS as infections and cancers take over their body left unchecked by a crumbling immune system. Some 40 million people have died of AIDS or AIDS-related illness since the start of the epidemic, while another 40 million are living with HIV today. But much has changed over the past four decades. In the early days of the epidemic, HIV was invariably fatal with no long-term treatment and patients died within two short years of an AIDS diagnosis. In 1987, the first ever HIV drug was approved in the US, but the virus rapidly developed resistance against the treatment, making it ineffective. HIV was still considered pretty much untreatable well into the 90s, until new drugs targeting reverse transcriptase, integrase and other cogs in the viral replication cycle finally became available. When used in combination, These drugs control a HIV infection by preventing the virus from making copies, and they either delay or altogether prevent the immune system collapse that marks the development of AIDS. This mixed treatment regimen is still used to this day, and when taken consistently, grants HIV-positive patients a near-normal life expectancy. Once a death sentence, HIV infection is now a lifelong manageable condition. The past 40 years have also seen tremendous progress towards reducing global AIDS transmission and preventing infections from occurring in the first place. Antiretroviral treatment taken during pregnancy minimises the risk of transmission from a HIV-positive mother to her unborn child. In the UK, PrEP pre-exposure prophylaxis, has been freely available on the NHS since 2020 to people at high risk of exposure to the virus because they're intravenous drug users or have sex with high-risk partners. PrEP greatly reduces the chance of new infections in HIV-negative individuals and, if taken consistently, reduces the rate of sexually transmitted HIV by 99%. Meanwhile, initiatives such as World AIDS Day and the UNAIDS programme continue the essential work of increasing public awareness, reducing stigma, and promoting prevention practices and testing across the globe. However, access to healthcare and the cost of a lifetime regimen of treatment remains a barrier in many low- and middle-income countries, the same countries most affected by AIDS. Today, half of all HIV-positive individuals live in Eastern and Southern Africa. Infections are no longer restricted to historically at-risk groups either. Over half of all people living with HIV in the world today are women and girls. And in spite of the remarkable medical advances after the last four decades, AIDS still claimed one life every minute in 2022. So how can we end this epidemic for good? Given the fact that we now have the virus in our hands, it is quite possible, in fact, it's invariable, that we will develop a vaccine for AIDS. The question that remains to be answered is... Will that vaccine be effective in protecting individuals against infection with the virus? And we don't know that, but hopefully, our recent advances of being able to isolate, identify and characterize the agent will allow us over the next year to come back to you and tell you that we now not only have hope and hypothesis, but that we have a real prevention and indeed a real cure. This is Dr. Anthony Fauci speaking at the NIH in 1984. Sadly, his hopes that a vaccine or a cure would be found within a year of that speech never materialized. The rapid demonstration of the potential of mRNA vaccines was one of the very, very, very few good things to come out of the recent COVID-19 pandemic. So you may well be wondering why after decades of concerted efforts, there was still no sign of a promising HIV vaccine when the first COVID-19 jab was administered barely a year after SARS-CoV-2 was identified. It's not been for lack of trying. There have been more than 250 vaccine trials to date, abandoned one after another due to disappointing results. Why? Well, because HIV is a uniquely challenging virus. First of all, it is notorious for its rapid mutation rate. I mentioned earlier in the episode that the HIV reverse transcriptase enzymes was very error prone and introduces mutations in the DNA synthesizers. What I didn't emphasize was just how error prone the enzyme really is. The HIV genome ends up being mutated a hundred thousand times faster than our own genome and up to a 100 times faster than the influenza virus, which, by the way, mutates so quickly that you need a new flu jab every year to keep up. In fact, HIV has the highest reported mutation rates of any known biological entity. This means the virus can adapt and evolve extraordinarily quickly and acquires drug resistance at an alarming speed it also means that it's extremely difficult to develop a vaccine against this constantly shape-shifting target. What's more, HIV infects the immune system, throwing yet another spanner in the works. The virus hides in the very cells responsible for clearing the infection. And as you can imagine, teaching the immune system to mount a response against itself is far from straightforward. Taken together, then, it's not surprising that the quest for a HIV vaccine has consistently hit roadblock after roadblock. So, while scientists grapple with a way to prevent new infections, what about the other part of the puzzle? Not just treating, but curing existing HIV infections. In order to enter and infect a target cell, HIV grabs onto two receptors on the helper cell surface, the CD4 receptor, which incidentally gives the cell type its full name, and the CCR5 receptor. And it needs to grab onto both receptors at once. But some people carry a mutated version of the CCR5 gene called Delta 32 meaning that it's missing 32 crucial base pairs of DNA. This mutation prevents the receptor from being expressed on the cell surface and is surprisingly common. Up to one in five people of European ancestry have one copy of the CCR5-Delta32 gene, while one in a hundred people have two copies. These double, or homozygous carriers, have no CCR5 receptors on the surface of their immune cells, effectively locking HIV out and protecting them from infection. Heterozygous carriers who carry one full-length CCR5 gene copy and one mutated copy aren't fully protected from infection, but their disease progression is slower. Nobody knows for sure why this mutation is so common in people of European descent while it is virtually absent from African and Asian populations. Some scientists suspect that individuals carrying the CCR5 Delta 32 version in the past may have been protected against the plague or some other deadly infectious disease that swept through Europe in the Middle Ages. Those survivors passed on their mutated genes onto the next generation, evolution in action, But whatever disease Delta 32 protected against back then, it is certainly protecting against HIV now. And it could even hold the key to a HIV cure. The discovery of CCR5 Delta 32 gave scientists a daring idea. What if you could replace all the helper T-cells of a HIV-positive patient? with cells carrying the protective version of the CCR5 gene, so the virus wouldn't be able to grab on and infect them. Switching an entire blood system out is easier said than done, but not unheard of. It's exactly what happens during stem cell transplants. So when in 2007, HIV positive Timothy Brown needed a stem cell transplant to treat his aggressive leukemia, his medical team had a thought. They were already replacing all of his blood with that of a donor, so why not choose a donor who happened to carry the CCR5 Delta 32 mutation? The team genetically tested dozens of potential donors, and on the 61st attempt, they finally struck gold with a CCR5 Delta 32 homozygous donor who was also a good match for the transplant. Timothy underwent chemotherapy to wipe out his blood cells, including any cancerous or virus-infected cells, before receiving new cells from the donor. On the day of his transplant, he stopped his HIV medication for the very first time since his HIV diagnosis. Remarkably, the infection never came back, and Timothy Brown became the first individual ever to be cured of the virus. To date, five people have been cured of HIV using this approach, but the procedure is not without risk. Stem cell transplants can go badly wrong and are normally reserved as a treatment of last resort. Timothy's case is often cited in the press as an exciting success story, but the reality wasn't as simple as the papers made out. Shortly after his first treatment, his leukemia came back, requiring him to undergo a second transplant from the same donor. This time, he nearly went blind, lost the ability to walk, and took over six years to fully recover from the procedure. So, even though this treatment approach is exciting and can be a cure, it is clearly not applicable for widespread use. And why subject someone to a life-threatening procedure when antiretroviral drugs can effectively suppress HIV anyway? Nevertheless, the prospect of a gene-based cure has not been abandoned. In 2018, CCR5 found itself in the news once more, albeit this time mired in controversy. Chinese geneticist He jong stunned the world when he announced that he had used CRISPR-Cas9 to genetically modify two human embryos. The twin girls, born as a result of his experiment, for lack of a better word, reportedly carried a modified version of the CCR5 gene, making them, at least in principle, resistant to HIV. The news received tremendous backlash from the scientific community, and He jong was sentenced to three years in prison for illegal medical practices. If you want to hear more about this story, Sally and Kat covered the controversy in more detail in our CRISPR in the Clinic episode from 2021, and our GMO or GMNO episode from earlier this year. The ending of the HIV story has yet to be written, but scientists haven't stopped coming up with new ways to tackle the virus. Daily pills are already being replaced with monthly injections to help patients that often forget to take their medication. And earlier this year, doctors began trialling a new CRISPR-based cure in humans, injecting adults with gene-editing molecules that seek out and excise the HIV DNA from the genome. Given how far we've come from Sandy Ford's memo in 1981, who knows where we'll be four decades from now. That's all for now. We'll be back next time, taking a closer look at our genomes and the so-called junk DNA. What can we learn from hundreds of thousands of human genomes about health and disease? What lies lurking within the dark genome in between our actual genes? And is most of it really just junk? For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at GeneticsUnzip, and please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple podcasts. It really does make a difference and it helps more people discover this show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written, presented and produced by me, Emma Werner, in collaboration with Sally LePage and with additional research by Miyaka Rogers. It's a first Create the Media production for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. The executive producer is Kat Arnie. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard and the logo was designed by James Mayle. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. (laughs) Let's <laughs>